First Peter, the third chapter, the 15th verse, Peter gives us a, some exhortation here that uh, I, I feel like I have often ignored and maybe, maybe let go when I should have, should have considered it uh, in greater detail. He says there in, uh, in the 15th verse of 1 Peter 3, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. <clears throat> now, the word answer here is the Greek word apologia. And you would recognize that as, as our word apology. Uh, today, an apology is used as an excuse for something that was done wrong. Uh, originally, apologia was a defense of something that was considered to be right. So somehow it's kind of gotten a little backwards through the years. But the Greek word there is apologia, and it's a defense. So Peter's telling us that we should, we should be prepared to defend something the definition there, according to Thayer's lexicon, is a verbal defense, speech and defense, a reason, statement, or argument. So maybe in times past you've heard someone talk about Christian apologetics. This is what it's talking about. It's a defense. A defense for the truth that we find in the scriptures. This, uh, this scripture here, is telling us, Peter is telling us, to be ready to give a defense for what we hope for, for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. So I'd like to ask you this evening, can you do that? You know, sometimes we let our imagination, I have in the past, uh, let my imagination overwhelm me. And maybe you, you think that's a daunting task, to be able to defend your hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe you say, I, I, don't know, I don't know enough. You know, I, I've got to learn more. Maybe, maybe you even say, I know I've been accused in the past or been guilty in the past, saying I'm not smart enough, not educated in the scriptures enough to be able to do that. You know what that is? That's an apology in our modern terms. That's an excuse for something we're not doing right when we say that. Peter is warning us here to be ready for this circumstance. The situation may arise in which someone asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you. Why is Peter telling people this? Why is he warning us of this? Is it to increase our faith? Is it to cause people to be a Christian, to become a Christian? Well, I, I guess I feel like in my own case, if, if I can't explain to someone or an offer a defense for the reason of the hope that I have, I don't have much hope. Something's wrong with my hope. It's cause for concern. But that's not who Peter was writing here to. Peter was writing to people that he said did have hope. He was telling people, I know you have hope. Now can you tell someone else why you have that hope? I believe he's instructing us 
in a way that will help us fulfill the obligation, the responsibility that we see in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He's telling us the circumstance in which we need to be ready to do that. Now that encompasses a lot. And Peter's talking about specifically our hope, the hope we have in Jesus. So that narrows it down a little bit. But when we, ha- when we know the reason for the hope that's within us, when we have a discussion with someone and we sit down with them or we, we spend a few minutes talking to them about the reason of the hope that's within us, then what are we doing? We're spreading the gospel. We're going into all the world and preaching the gospel. You see, teaching the gospel to someone is an opportunity. And when someone asks you a reason for the hope that is within you, that opportunity is just open to you. That door has just been opened. Someone asks you why, the simple question why, you've got an opportunity. And more times than not, the reason they're asking you that is they have some level of trust in you or they have some relationship with you and they believe that maybe you can answer that question. So Peter here is warning us to be ready for this situation. Now I want you to take just a moment. Uh, what I'm going to say in the next few seconds not very important. So, so I want you to take this opportunity for just a moment and ask yourself if someone walked up to you or sat down beside you and, and asked you, why do you have hope in everlasting life? Or why do you believe in a God that you have never met that you've never seen in person, that you've never talked to in person, why do you believe that he can promise you things that are to come in the future? What would you say? You know, that can seem like a very daunting task. Because we look at the Bible and we think, where do I begin? So what's the reason or your hope. Notice Peter does not say here that if you sit down with someone and you talk to them about the reason of the hope that's within you and you, you fail to convince them, you fail to convict them, you fail to convert them, that you are an utter failure. He did not say that. He said that it was our responsibility to offer a defense when asked a reason for the hope that is within us. What is your hope based on? What is your reason? Is it the birth of Jesus? You know, Brother Jimmy talked a a week or so ago about the importance of the birth of Jesus. And it is very important. Without Jesus, I don't know what else there would be. Uh, It's a very important event. It's a miraculous event. Nothing ever happened like that before. Nothing happened like that since. So would telling an unbeliever about the miraculous event of the birth of Jesus cause them to have any pause? Maybe it would. I don't know. But probably not. To them that's a Maybe a myth, a fable.
is the reason of the hope that's with him based on the death of Jesus. And that's a huge event to a Christian. It's everything to a Christian. It's what gives us the possibility of everlasting life. It's what washes our sins away, that precious blood that Jesus shed on that cross. It's what gives us hope of remission of sins. But again, to some person that is an unbeliever, it's a fairy tale. He was some stranger in a faraway land that has nothing to do with us. And it's hard for them to wrap their mind around it. But to the Christian, it's everything. To the unbeliever who doesn't know Jesus, it doesn't mean much. Would you simply say, I, it's the Bible, I believe the Bible. Go study the Bible. Just pick up a Bible and start reading it. You'll, you'll understand. Would that work? Is it based on a feeling in the pit of your stomach? I just know this is right. I just know it's true. Is it based on what someone else has told you? Maybe a parent, a preacher, a trusted friend, something they told you. Is your reason for the hope that is within you based on that? You know, certainly some of these things uh, have some merit, some not so much. These things need to be taught and believed. But we're talking about a situation in which someone out of the blue asks you, why do you have this hope? And your job's to say something that might cause them to think, I need to investigate this a little further. I need to think about this. Maybe I need to talk to, to more people about this. Maybe I do need to study and consider this. Maybe there's something I need to know that will change my life. What is the basis for your hope? The thing of it is, Peter didn't just make this declaration and expect us to figure it out. He gave us some insight to it. And I think what he, what he taught, what he spoke about, is very important for us, and it's not that difficult. That's the thing about it. Notice what Peter wrote in the beginning of his epistle in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. He said, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Now, Peter says here that God the Father, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again. I want you to remember that phrase. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. That's an interesting phrase to me. What does that mean? He hath begotten us again. Seems like a little, strange, a little bit of a strange phrase, but we're going to look at that again in a minute. But Peter didn't just leave us alone here to do the best we could. He pointed us in the right direction, and I'm thankful that he did. He said that he had begotten us into a lively hope, a hope that is alive, a hope that is not dead, a hope that is exciting. That's what Peter said God had done for them. How does he do that? He tells us. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Bible tells us if not for Jesus' resurrection, our faith is in vain. Have you ever thought about that? 
If not for the resurrection, our faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 19. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is, vain, is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If, any, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. It's a little bit of a difficult reading. It's, a, it's a little, worded in a little bit of a strange way. But, but Paul says here in essence that if you have hope in Christ in this life alone, if you don't have hope in a life hereafter, if you don't have hope in a resurrection from the dead, it's worthless. It has no value whatsoever. He went on to say that Jesus had already risen from the dead. But if you don't believe that, your faith is in vain. Your faith is worthless. So let's consider the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And, and I believe we'll understand how important it is in our providing this answer for the hope that is within us. And I want you to know this won't be a study on the resurrection per se. This is going to be a study about the evidence of the resurrection. Because that's where the power lies. And in convincing someone of the reason of the hope that is within you. It's, it's the evidence. So first of all, let's consider the eyewitness testimony. You know, we've, we've heard a, we, we, uh, we have a lot of witnesses in the eyewitness testimony. And uh, the Bible tells us that there is strength in the number of witnesses. Back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 17 and 6, the Bible says, At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. So even back under the law of Moses, when someone was accused of something that was, they were worthy of death for the sin they had committed, the Bible says if there's two or three witnesses, then you put them to death. But if there's only one witness, the Bible says you don't. You don't put them to death. You don't take one person's word against another. There needs to be more witnesses than that. So we begin to understand that there is strength in the number of witnesses. But I want you to consider Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 8. <clears throat> For I have delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. It goes on to say, After that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Not one witness, not 
two or three witnesses. Right here, it's easy to count of over 500 witnesses to the resurrection. You consider the apostles, and Jesus appeared to them, some of them three, some four times. After he was risen from the dead and before he was ascended back to heaven. Then we see 500 brethren at once. There were witnesses to the resurrection. But that's, that's not all. There's more. Jesus didn't just show himself. He convinced them of the truth of it. In Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. The former treaties I, have I made thee, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commands unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You see, he showed himself. He not only showed himself, he proved to them beyond a shadow of the doubt that he was Jesus and that he had arisen from the dead. And we'll see a little later the effect it had on them. It didn't go unnoticed. There were many, many eyewitnesses. Far too many to be mistaken. Far too many to have had a hallucination. You know, that's, that's been an accusation. Far too many to be a fabrication. I ask you to consider the quality of the witnesses. You know, there were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection that had not been believers while he was alive. John chapter 7 and verse 5, the Bible says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. He had relatives, brothers. That's the sense used here. His own brothers, his own family didn't believe him. Now, notice the change in their attitude in Acts chapter 1 verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brethren. Now they believed. Now they understood. The Bible says now they were of one accord. You see the change? You know, in John, the 20th chapter and 24th verse, we won't turn there and read, but we know that Thomas was skeptical. The apostle Thomas was skeptical. He said, unless I see the, the prince in his hands and able to thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And later, Jesus appeared again to the apostles, and Thomas was with them. And he said, my Lord and my God. He believed. It was proven to him. He was able to put his hands in those prints and the nail prints in his hand. He was able to thrust his hand in his side. And there was no more doubt. We also know that Paul was a former persecutor of Jesus. He spent many years persecuting Jesus. But he was one of them, remember, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Now some say that was merely a, a vision. That wasn't real. It, wasn't, it was real. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it was proven to him. He recognized him the instant he saw him. 
and he knew he, who he was. The point being here, there were reluctant eyewitnesses. They weren't all blindly following someone. They were reluctant, and they were convinced. <clears throat> and that's what Peter wants for us. That's what he's exhorting us to know. Why are you convinced? If you are convinced, if you're not convinced, I urge you to become convinced. Know what you believe. Be able to defend it. The witnesses of the resurrection certainly did. I ask you to consider the strength of their testimony. <clears throat> Notice not everybody got to see Jesus. Only those who knew him best and could easily identify him. In 1 John, the first chapter, beginning in the first verse. Not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before God. Even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. People that could identify him. Yeah, I know him. I saw him crucified on a cross. I saw him go in the grave. I saw the stone rolled in front of the grave. I saw him wrapped in, he in grave clothes from head to foot and over a hundred pounds of spices being placed on top of him. And now he's not in that grave anymore. I know him. <clears throat> First John, continuing on there in First John. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on with our hands, have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and declared, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Now in this short verse, few verses here in 1 John, four verses, how many times did John say we saw it, we heard it, we looked at it, we felt it, we want you to know it so that your joy may be full. How many times did John say that? What they witnessed with their own eyes changed them forever. In Acts chapter 5, verses 28 through 32, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in his name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give, it, give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Do you remember Peter when Jesus was taken prisoner before he was crucified? You remember what Peter did? He said, I don't know the guy. I don't know him. Remember what most of the apostles did as Jesus was led to be crucified? The Bible says they fled. 
And now here in Acts chapter 5, Peter finds himself in a similar set of circumstances. Do you see a difference? He doesn't back down. He said, we ought to obey God rather than men. He said, we are witnesses of these things. That's a transformed life. Notice further in verses 41 and 42. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing in that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They'd just been commanded not to. Don't do that anymore. And yet they continue. They don't stop for one second. They don't delay. Remember the phrase in 1 Peter 1 and 3, I told you I wanted you to remember. The Father has begotten us again. You know, Jesus had made the apostles followers of him. But they all at some point faltered. They failed in some, some way as we do today. When Jesus was buried, he was crucified and buried. They rolled that stone in front of the door. They thought it was over. They thought that's all there was. But now they have proof. Remember the Bible said they have many infallible proofs of the resurrection. The Father had begotten them again. And this time they were changed. This time there was no going back. This time they were convinced forever. A transformed life. We see transformed life in their personal sacrifices in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 11 through 13. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And laboring, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat, we are made as the filth of the world and are, and are the offscouring of all things and to this day, you know, it's not often that someone will offer eyewitness testimony when they know they're going to suffer for it. That doesn't happen very often. When it's not in their best own best interest, it doesn't usually happen. But these witnesses did, knowing they would suffer for it. They were credible witnesses. They were credible in their testimony. They were credible because of the changes that it made in their lives. And they were credible because they were willing to die for what they had seen. So let's talk about the significance of their testimony. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 15, Paul here fully recognizes that if Jesus is not risen, then he's, he said, we are liars. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is in vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God, that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Paul said, I've testified that this has happened. And if it did not happen, I'm a liar. And I'm a false witness. 
2 Peter 1 and 16, Peter says something similar. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were witnesses of his majesty. Peter recognized the same thing. He recognized that some were going to accuse them of devising this fable, of collaborating together in a lie. He says it didn't happen. As we have already stated, they would have suffered knowingly, suffered for a lie. How likely is that? The standard of morality for the world would have been written by deceivers. That's the significance of the resurrection if it was not true. So I ask you, is it reasonable to believe that over 500 witnesses planned and flawlessly executed the greatest hoax that was ever perpetrated on mankind. Is that likely? If you're going to consider the significance of the resurrection if it was a lie, you have to also consider the significance of the resurrection, their testimony, if it was true, if Jesus was risen from the dead. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13 through 14. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that they sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. You remember that living hope that Peter talked about? He spoke of in 1 Peter 1 3. That's possible for us to have. That excitement for that hope, the rejoicing of having that hope, that's possible for us to have. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we have hope for our own resurrection. If it's true, then we have that hope. But the biggest significance of Jesus rose from the dead is that everything that he ever said is true also. Like John 12 and 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judge him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That's true. If the resurrection is true. John 14 and 6. Jesus saith to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That's true. If the resurrection is true. John 20 and 29, Jesus saith to them, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen me and yet believe. That is true if the resurrection is true. Do you see the significance? The evidence for Christ's resurrection? It was made up of a huge number of witnesses. They were quality witnesses. They weren't just false witnesses. They were quality witnesses that had first-hand knowledge of the resurrection. There was strength in their testimony. They never backed down. Not a single one of them. Every one of them ended up dying for it. The significance for them, if it was a, was a lie, was terrible. It was terrible. The significance for us today, if it was true, is immeasurable. You see, this subject is not difficult. It's not difficult to remember the resurrection. 
the scriptures that we've talked about this evening, you can write on the back of a business card. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that you could offer a defense for the reason of the hope that is within you? Thinking about from a resurrection point of view. If you weren't convinced before, are you now? Are you convinced enough to be obedient to Jesus in baptism? Are you a Christian, but you've been weak? The apostles were weak. We're all weak from time to time. Peter was. Paul was. We are all are today at some points. Does the testimony of the witnesses make you stronger? Make you more determined? Are you re-energized? Are you begotten again? As Peter says they were. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.